News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of harvesting icebergs? I know, sounds kind of weird, right? But it's actually something that's been going on for a very, very long time. And it makes sense when you think about what we were doing to keep cool before refrigeration came along. We had to rely on harvesting ice in the winter months. But in Newfoundland, they're kind of reinventing the idea of iceberg harvesting. They tow icebergs, they melt them, and then they sell the water. But is that a good thing? Well, Dr. Matthew Burkhold is an associate professor at Ohio University and the author of Chasing Icebergs, and he joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Now, is this something that we've always done, harvested icebergs in some way? So around the world, people have been interested in icebergs as a freshwater source for a long time, um, but it depends where you are. So in Greenland, the Inuit, for instance, have long used icebergs as a water source. So in the summer on long kayak trips, you could just stop and scoop out a piece of an iceberg from the water. And in winter, when all of the inland ice freezes, you could walk out to the water, chip out an iceberg and melt it back home. So in Greenland, it's fairly common. Um, In the United States, where I'm calling, people have never heard of this. Yeah. Well, it's also, I guess, the way you just say, like harvesting an iceberg, like it's a crop or something, right? Yeah, that's right. So in some municipalities in Greenland, in Connock, way up north, for instance, the city actually sends dump trucks out to collect icebergs and then they put them into a melter and then it comes out of people's taps. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But in Greenland, we're talking about an area that probably has a lot of icebergs. What about in a place like, say, Newfoundland and Labrador, where, you know, they're kind of part of the natural landscape, people go there to see them? Should we be doing this? Is there any kind of concern about this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I want to start by acknowledging I'm in Ohio in the United States where we have abundant fresh water. So I don't think about very uh, often water, but this isn't the case for people around the world. So the UN estimates by 2030 that global demand for fresh water will exceed supply by 40%, and about two thirds of the world's population will face regular water shortages. So if I summarize really briefly, it's that collectively we're in trouble. So when I think about what we should or shouldn't be doing with icebergs, I have to not think about my own perspective, but think about people in Cape Town, South Africa, for instance, where they're running out of water. So two thirds of our freshwater is trapped in glaciers and ice caps. So the question for me is, how can we get that to the people who need it without destroying the environment in the process? Well, right. Isn't it trapped there for a reason? Like, doesn't it provide a benefit being trapped there? Uh, I, I don't know if it's trapped there for a reason. You might say it's divine providence that, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago before there was human-made pollution, our planet sealed off this ice for us. So now it's waiting for us. It's perfectly free of pollution. It's low minerality. And then it sends it out in these perfectly packaged parcels of fresh water for us. Right. Um, so but it's not just, I, you know, but think- Dr. Burkle, it's not just replaceable, Right. Uh, It's not replaceable, but we get about 40,000 icebergs every year. And to give you a sense, a comparatively small iceberg at 2,000 feet long and 650 feet thick would be able to supply Cape Town water for an entire year. So it's replaceable insofar as those glaciers are going to keep growing. Of course, that's not the trend, as you observed. So eventually we're going to run out of glaciers and ice caps. But at that point, we're in much bigger trouble. Okay, well, that's a good point, because that was my initial thought was that, well, yeah, we can't, they're not just going to keep regenerating. We're not growing new icebergs, but you're saying deal with one problem at a time. Yeah, so the the way I think about this is this is in no way a solution to global warming. And if anything, this this is a sign of just how bad global warming is getting, that we're getting more and more icebergs every year. But we might think about this as a sort of silver lining that we're getting now, again, 40,000 icebergs a year. If we can just pull a few from the Arctic and Antarctic to places that really need fresh water, we're going to be able to keep some people alive that otherwise might really be struggling in the face of freshwater shortages. You were talking about what happens to icebergs in international waters. What happens? That's right. So once an iceberg calves from a glacier, it moves through territorial waters. So then it'll belong to Greenland, or in that case, Denmark, or Canada, or if that makes it all the way to the United States, the United States 
But once it crosses that 200 nautical miles from a coastline, it's in international waters, and an iceberg belongs to anyone. So it's first come, first serve. So if I were to go out and find a you know, million-ton iceberg, that could belong to me if I simply got there first. Or it could belong to a corporation. So my fear is icebergs, once they hit international waters, are going to end up in the hands of the elites rather than the people who need them most. Well, yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So are we going to fight about this now? Do we need rules about this? Yeah, exactly. So uh, I started this project about five years ago, and everyone laughed at me and said, this is absurd. We're never, never going to harvest icebergs, except for people in Newfoundland. Because there, they've been doing it for so long, they see that, that it's a business, and they have all the technology to do it. And so what I've learned is we need to get ahead of this before it starts happening. So there are currently three major players who are trying to do long-distance towing from Antarctica to Africa. And there's currently no legal apparatus to regulate what that looks like in terms of who gets the icebergs or the environmental consequences. So we don't have any environmental laws in place over who should be able to drag icebergs or where they can take them or how many. Is any is this on the radar of any country to talk about this? Yes. Yeah, so South Africa has been exploring this as an option to alleviate water insecurity. Um, in the United Arab Emirates, there's a serious effort to drag icebergs to the desert. Um, in one imagination, they're transforming the red desert to a green oasis. I don't think that's possible. Um, and then there's a German company that's actually uh, raising money privately. So it's not through the government, but it's through a private company. Um, more recently, uh, there, was a, there was a small bottler operating out of Svalbard in Norway. Um, and he was actually selling his bottles of iceberg water for 100 euros a bottle. Whoa. Were people buying it? Yes. Yeah, it was doing really well. You could buy it in Hong Kong and Sydney and Los Angeles. Um, in Los Angeles, I think it was retailing for 150 U.S. dollars. Um, people, people have this really strong association with icebergs as being almost like sparkling diamonds or these sort of rare ephemeral gems because we're so far away, at least in the United States, from icebergs. Um, it's something that scholars describe as arcticism, this idea that we have a set of images that come to constitute knowledge of a much more heterogeneous terrain. So in the Arctic, we tend to think about it in these fixed tropes as being like pristine and pure and sublime. So then that gets associated with icebergs. And then we stop thinking about icebergs as a natural resource. And we think about them as a luxury item. So then people are all of a sudden willing to pay $100 for some iceberg water. It, it doesn't. It seems to me, Dr. Burkhold, that what we're really doing here as well is we're kind of commodifying something that we were looking at as a natural wonder or something beautiful before. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in that commodification process, because we still have this association, it's becoming a high-end commodity. So in 2010, for instance, uh, Chanel Carl Lagerfeld dragged an iceberg to Paris to sell fantasy fur looks. Right? So we have this really strong association between luxury and icebergs. Then unfortunately, that means people laugh when we think about letting people who don't have a lot of money consume icebergs. Right? This, this feels like a luxury. Why should we drag an iceberg to Africa then? So in part, I think we need a legal framework, but we also need a broader cultural conceptual shift in how we're thinking about icebergs. Okay. And how do we start that process? Uh, I, I guess, you know, my, my very modest academic attempt is write a book and just shout <laughs> into the void. We need to rethink icebergs. Um, you know, I think in, in many ways, Newfoundland is doing really exciting work um, where you can buy iceberg beer, you can buy iceberg wine. Um, icebergs are used for beauty products. Because again, it's this pure, unpolluted water. So we're showing that you can use icebergs a lot of way. Now we just need to regulate what corporations do it to make sure that icebergs are equitably divided among people in the world. Right. Um, because really, I think it is everyone's resource. Right. But when you talk about places like Greenland and Newfoundland and Labrador, as you point out, they have long associations, long relationships uh, with icebergs. But dragging an iceberg to the United Arab Emirates or to Paris for a fashion show, that seems out of the norm. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly out of the norm. Um, I think it could do a lot of good in the world, though. Um, again, when we when we go back to those statistics and think about uh, a quarter of the world's population living in water-stressed countries, what can we do to alleviate that, that problem? Um, so I think if we can manage to do it in a way that doesn't harm the environment, 
then icebergs might be a good idea. We're going to harm the environment twofold, though. We're going to damage the Arctic or the Antarctic, where the iceberg is taken from, and then also the local ecosystem where a giant block of frozen freshwater is deposited into much warmer water. So we don't want that to be happening 40,000 times a year. We want that to be happening only a few times a year. We want this to be a gentle process. And for that, we need laws to step in and regulate how many icebergs people can take. Hmm. Well, thank you for flagging this for us. It was interesting. Yeah. um, Again, Canadians are ahead of the rest of the world in this process. So I think we have a lot to learn from, from my neighbors up north. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. That's Dr. Matthew Berghold, Associate Professor at Ohio University, author of Chasing Icebergs. This is Mornings with Simi. All right. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And we have a long list of things that we're going to talk about. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Are you surprised there's trouble in Surrey again? Um. I want to say no, but actually I am because this particular fight is a bit different. I've never heard of a school board and the city council of any community kind of fighting like this before. Yeah, it's never happened before, near as anybody can determine. It's unprecedented. So here's what happened. Every year, school boards send a list to the education ministry of the new schools they'd like built or at least put on the planning cycle and approved. And what they do is they run the list past their council to make sure the council is on the same page. And in Surrey anyway, what's been happening is the council goes, yeah, yeah, right. We need more schools. Go ahead. We approve. That didn't happen this year. The list, the proposal went to Surrey council last week and Surrey council voted it down. The Surrey School Board Chair uh, says she feels like a pawn in the battle between the provincial government and Surrey School Board, and she's looking for an explanation. The Education Ministry is saying, well, you know, we'll try to install a facilitator here and see if they can sort this out, but this is a serious showdown. It is unprecedented, but I think from what happened uh, Simi, we've got a pretty good idea why this thing went off the rails this year. Okay, why? So I guess the first thing, when I first saw the story, and it was in the sun yesterday, it was on Global last night. Uh, when I first saw the story, I thought, oh, God, this this bloody showdown over the policing services has spilled over into schools, and who knows where it'll end. But that's not the case. That The, the strongest clue as to what happened here is that The people who on the council who want to continue with Surrey Policing Services and the people on council who want to go back to the RCMP all voted together to reject the school board thing. The vote was unanimous. And when you look at why they did it, they all say the same thing. To them on the Surrey Council, what's unprecedented is the way the provincial government has brought in three big housing bills that allow Victoria, the provincial government, to take control over housing in Surrey and everywhere else in the province. And what the council said was, your list of where we should put the schools predates the passage of that legislation. We, council, want to know, Simi, they want to know the impact of the provincial government imposing a whole bunch of housing on Surrey. You can get 20-story buildings by bus loops and SkyTrain stations. You can get six plexes scattered through what are now single-family neighborhoods. And the council is saying, we just don't know what this is going to do to the need for schools in Surrey. Uh, Langley is saying much the same thing. Surrey already has 400 portables, and all they want is they want some kind of an understanding about the impact on the demand for schools in Surrey of the provincial government taking control over where housing growth is going to occur in the city. Okay, if that's the case then, why not sit down with the Surrey School District and figure this out? Why not give them the heads up and say, here here are our questions? Well, that's a good point. And that's where the relationship does sound a bit dysfunctional. Yes. Although, you know, the, the, I mean, yeah, the Surrey School Board is saying, 
this is unprecedented. And the Surrey Council is saying, yeah, you're right, it's unprecedented. This is, look, the provincial government imposed this new housing regimen on 85 BC cities and councils. Some of them are going along with it and saying, okay, you know, we'll try to work together. We got to deal with infrastructure and all that. And the provincial government is saying, don't worry, we'll be there. There's a lot of places, Surrey's one of them, Langley's another. There are other municipalities in British Columbia saying the same thing. Look, we just want to catch our breath and find out what this is going to do to us. Because if we're building schools for neighborhoods right now that have 400 portables, what's going to happen to all these single family neighborhoods in Surrey or, you know, the, the neighborhoods around bus loops and sky trains? Because there's well, I think 140 of those that are affected in in Metro Vancouver. Uh, you know, I think what we're headed for here, Simi, is this is an early warning of just how much is going to have to change as the new Democrats take control of housing, wrench it away from local government in British Columbia. There's going to be a lot more of this going on next year. We're just seeing the early warning signs of where it's headed. True, but it's, you know, it's like a political bun fight in Surrey because it seems to me, and Surrey residents know this, there has been an incredible pace of development in Surrey over the last 10, 20 years. And this has never happened before where they've stopped to question, oh, geez, are we doing enough to make sure that we've got the right spaces for schools? This is, seems to be the first time they've actually stopped and asked that question, and yet they've dealt with hundreds of portables every year. Well, yeah, and they've... And the current government promised it was going to deal with portables uh, when it got elected, and instead there's twice as many. Uh, The current government has said, relax, Uh, we're going to take care of the infrastructure and the schools and the sewers and all that. We're going to help you with all that when we impose all this housing on you. Um, You know, it's... I mean, I keep looking at it. Uh, my my colleague, Doug Todd uh, at The Sun, had an interesting piece on the weekend in the paper saying for the very first time, uh, some public figures in British Columbia are starting to ask whether the problem is, in fact, the enormous number of people we're importing into Canada, immigration and refugees. Most of them end up in the big cities, and it is very difficult even with the best of intentions for cities and provincial governments to keep up, to just answer the shortages that exist right now, never mind keep up with the enormous number of new Canadians we're letting in. It's a sensitive issue because it's very easily spills over into racism and xenophobia and all kinds of things. But yes, I would say for the first time, I'm starting to see sensible people out there saying, just a minute. Are we? It, our national government is is approving these targets for immigration. Is our national government providing enough money to help cities and provinces pay for the necessary housing, schools, roads, bridges, yeah. public facilities? I, you know, I I don't welcome the debate, Simi, in the sense that I I know how ugly it gets. I, yeah. I've been around long enough to remember, remember all the arguments over monster homes and all that. And, and that spills so fast into racism. But uh, I think if you could get some sensible leaders in our society just going, Ottawa is going to open the door to huge numbers of immigrants. Ottawa should be paying a bigger co- part of the cost yes. of accommodating all of All right, we are back with Vaughn Palmer now from the Vancouver Sun, and we're talking about cancer care. And Vaughn, I just, I wonder so much about this. You know, we used to have what we call a world-class system where we could be proud of it, and you didn't have to worry that if you got cancer, we were going to take care of you. And now increasingly, it doesn't seem like we're doing that. That's true, Simi. We had a world-class system, and it is also true, and there have been some very disturbing stories recently about how you can't count on that anymore. What? You know, again, I we've been debating healthcare waiting lists for a long time in Canada and in this province, but in BC, the stories about waiting for healthcare usually it was hip and knee replacements. And I was on a waiting list for a knee replacement. It's no fun. I was lucky; I got it fairly early. But you know, the pain of waiting for hip and knee replacement is one level of concern. 
But cancer is literally a matter of life and death. And we've had some stories lately that were sobering and uh, could just about bring you to tears and maybe bring you for te to tears. I'll give you one, just one. Global did this. Uh, it's been in other media as well. Uh, my colleague, Canada Rose, has done a bunch of stories in the sun. Samia Sakali, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Victoria resident diagnosed with stomach cancer this year, told by her doctors it was sufficiently advanced that she needed chemo right away, and her doctor also told her she wasn't going to get it. Uh, by the time she got chemo 10 weeks later, it was too far advanced, and she decided to opt for medically assisted death and did so in June. Uh, the coverage one detail that her family provided, and it is very hard to recount this and not get choked up, Simi. Uh, she sat down and wrote birthday cards to each of her six grandchildren and put them in six boxes, one to be opened on their birthday every year till they turned 18. That's her legacy. And I just... You know, as I said, these stories are very hard to take, very hard to report. And Simi, there's enough of them. You know, it's not just one. It's case history after case history. And I know Katie DeRosa, who's done the stories for The Sun, said every time she's done one of these stories, she hears from a family or a survivor or yeah. families of somebody who didn't survive saying, we'd like you to tell our story, too, because this is happening a lot in British Columbia. There's a a woman here in the capital region who just got tired of waiting for the care. And Simi, she found a doctor in Baltimore, Maryland, who was due the surgery that she needed. And she raised, combined with an inheritance and with um, a fundraising thing, she raised $205,000 to pay for her surgery. But she lived to tell the tale. She got married to her life partner in November with her kids around her. And she's going on. She's gone back to work as a realtor. She was looking at the end of the road. So I hear these stories. They are powerful. And there's so many of them, Simi, they are threatening, I think, to overwhelm the government's message that it's dealing with the problem. Yeah, it is. And so what does the premier have to say about this? <laughs> well, you know, we'll start with Adrian Dix, because as you know, Adrian always has the statistics at his fingertips and he does his own technical briefings, and he can show you with charts and graphs that the NDP have added, I don't know, 40,000 healthcare workers and hired cancer doctors and all that. But it doesn't take very many anecdotes, you know, case histories like the ones I've just told you to overwhelm the stats. You go, you've hired 40,000 healthcare workers. Where are they and what are they doing? The premier has his line is, well, it's unacceptable. You know, I, I'm... I'm just not going to accept this. And yet, I... What does that mean, me, though? Uh, right? Look, I don't un, understand un, what that means. Unacceptable has become a favorite word of our politicians. This is not acceptable. Well, what are you going to do about it? I mean, I would use an example. When the New Democrats decided that the waiting lists for BC ferries, which is an inconvenience, not a matter of health or life and death, they fired the CEO of BC Ferries, and they installed an NDP cabinet minister to, as chair of the board, and she installed her hand-picked CEO. So when they're dealing with somebody else's appointees, and it's unacceptable, the New Democrats fire somebody, and they change direction. I don't see any evidence that David Eby's this is unacceptable has led to any change of direction in the seven years the New Democrats have been in power, the courses they've charted, and he's certainly not firing anybody over it. So unacceptable, I would say he's accepted it. And he's counting on the public to be patient enough to wait while the numbers approve. But it isn't just a case of numbers. It's, I mean, you know, well, it's a system that has to recognize yeah. urgency. And that's, yeah. I feel like, what's missing in the system right now is that, as you point out, if somebody needs chemo right away, then they should be getting chemo right away. It should yeah. be able to distinguish who needs to get in right away. Yes, 
And, uh, you know, again, we've had another one. This one was on the front page of the Victoria paper, 52 year old waiting for chemo, checks into the hospital, never gets out. And finally, after 10 weeks, tells uh, his life partner, I can't take it anymore. I can't walk, can't eat. And again, he opts for medically assisted death, which is a mercy, but that's what's happening, right? That's the system at its worst, and there's too much of it. And I think the premier needs to say more than it's unacceptable. He, I think, needs to do something stronger than just talk about it. And uh, I admire Adrian Dix's command of the statistics and the technicalities, but frankly, it just isn't cutting it anymore when you hear what's actually happening to real people in our healthcare system, real people who have cancer and need care now. Exactly. I agree. They're not numbers. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. There are a lot of people who thought the day would never come. The Catholic Church would never change its stance when it comes to same-sex couples. And yet, look at what has been announced. The Vatican and Pope Francis outlined guidelines yesterday that allow for the blessings of same-sex couples. Now, it'll be separate from marriage and can't be associated with a specific Catholic ceremony or ritual, but the Vatican is actually talking about same-sex relationships and blessing them. I did have to wonder, though, how much of an impact will this have? Is it already too late for the Catholic Church to modernize and take these steps? We're going to talk more about that now. Dr. Christina Trana is a professor of religious studies and Catholic ethics at Fordham University and joins us now. Dr. Trana, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, how big of a deal is this? Well, it's going to be on one hand and on the other hand. (laughs) On one hand, it's a huge deal because only two years ago, the same Vatican office said simply, you can't bless sin, right? So that change that anyone, absolutely anyone can seek a blessing is a big change. Um, And I can talk more about that if you want. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, it changes absolutely nothing about the understanding of sexuality outside of a heterosexual sacramental marriage. So it doesn't mean that gay and lesbian couples or divorced and remarried couples or unmarried couples are seen in any better light with regard to the, the sin of sexual um, impropriety than they were before. So, but is the Catholic Church then getting what it wants out of this? And that is the headline that says, oh, look, same-sex couples, same-sex couples are welcome in the Catholic Church. I think it's, I don't want to be that cynical. Here's how I would look at it. Uh, very often change in the Catholic Church, which is normally glacial, happens in this way, especially if someone has painted themselves into a doctrinal corner, which they have over the past decades. So what often happens is that there's a change in practice, which goes on for a while, which gradually leads to a change in understanding, which might lead to a development in doctrine. But we all would need to live for a very long time to see if that will actually happen. I think what's really important is that they said that no one is ineligible for a blessing, that there is no degree of sinfulness that means you can't sincerely ask for God's assistance. So what happened behind the scenes here then, Dr. Twina? This sounds very much like something Pope Francis wanted to do, but it was difficult clearly to get done with a lot of resistance right in the hierarchy of the church. So has something changed? Yes. Um, Three things. First of all, this fall before the Synod meeting in the Vatican, he himself said that it would be possible to bless couples who are um, gay or lesbian. Secondly, the leader of the dicastery or the office that issued this uh, statement was recently changed to someone who is less who is, has been asked to be a little bit more 
open-minded and capacious with his respect to th- with his approach to theology right and and then finally we can think of this in this way suppose you work for a company and the head of the company says well okay since you happen to be married to someone of the same gender i will figure out a way to make sure that your spouse's medical coverage is is a part of our policy right or is 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 enacted even though we don't have a policy on that it would be much better for you if your company had a policy that everyone's spouse's medical coverage um was was eligible for medical coverage. And you now you know I'm an American, right? Because I chose this example. I suddenly right. realized this is silly in an American context. Anyway, you, because then if the president of the company leaves, you still have coverage, right? So this is what Francis has done. He himself said it was okay to bless couples, gay and lesbian couples or divorced couples. But now it is a matter of church policy that it is okay to bless gay and lesbian couples, divorced couples, etc. And so this is his legacy. When he's gone, this policy will still be there. But could the policy be changed in the future? Oh, of course it could, but it would take, then you, we have momentum going in a certain direction and it would take a fair amount of effort to erase this policy, especially because it is something that has become very popular, I would say, in the, in the Western and Northern parts of the church. And it's also important to realize that even this step is horrifying to some people in the global South, for instance, who have been working very hard to uh, enforce the teaching on a, a single partner of the same gender. Is this like a crack then, would you say? The door has opened a little bit for this modernization of the Catholic Church? The door has opened, but it will be a long, slow process, and it will be through a circuitous route, not a direct route. That seems to be the history of the Catholic Church, though, doesn't it? Uh, Dr. Trena, thank you. thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're very welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, you've got some shopping days left before this weekend. And let me just say, it is my personal belief that you can never go wrong giving a book. I love picking a book to give someone as a gift. And there are so many great choices this year. But we're going to help you make those decisions. We have brought in an expert to do that. Amanda Gauthier is a director of print at Indigo and is with us now. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Now, I know you probably read a lot of books. How many would you say you read in a year? Oh, in a year. Goodness, probably 150. No. Yes. How? Yeah. Where do you, how do you do that? How do you read so many books? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's part of my job. So I read as many as I can throughout the week. I have a living room book. I have a bedroom book. I have a transit book. I have a lunchtime book. We're just always, always reading. I am so jealous. I'm going to hit 45 this year. That's my goal. And I thought That's that was pretty huge. impressive. Is it? You just said 150. (laughs) You have another job. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I mean, I'd like your job, but still, that's another topic. So, um, but let's talk about some of your favorites this year. Um, There are some amazing books out right now. Do you have some recommendations for us? We have such a great collection this year that it was actually really difficult to narrow it down. Uh, But I'm going to start with some real favorites of mine. So, Uh, A treasured, treasured storyteller, a Canadian storyteller that we just love and the perfect gift for the fiction lover. Um, This year, Wabgashi Rice's new book, Moon of the Turning Leaves, is incredible. Um, It can be read as a standalone book, but it is even more wonderful if you pair it with the first installment, uh, which was kind of an apocalyptic, yet really gorgeous book called uh, Moon of the Turning Leaves. He has an incredible eye for detail. It's incredibly hopeful. He weaves an incredible story of characters and storylines and twists. It is just a delight, and you will not go wrong. It is really, truly unputdownable. So for the fiction lover, you cannot go wrong. Moon of the Turning Leaves. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Moon of the Turning Leaves. I have seen this book 
everywhere. I know yeah. it's front and center at Indigo every time I go in there, and I go in there a lot. Uh, it's always sitting right there. Is this the kind of book that you think you can give to anyone and just say, hey, check this out? Totally. As you know, there's something about his capacity for storytelling. It really opens up in a cinematic way, and you are just lifted right off the page. From the first page, you are invested in these characters. And he is one, he's a Canadian treasure. If you haven't read him before, um, this Indigenous storyteller is just an absolute canon to have on your shelf. All right, Wabgashig Rice, Moon of the Turning Leaves. Now, what about for music lovers out there? Oh, I have the best one. So Getty Lee put out a memoir, Getty Lee, of course, from the band Rush. Um, So definitely for music lovers, but it's actually just so beautifully written that you are going to find yourself sharing pieces of his story with your family and friends over dinner, over drinks. He shares not just like the intimate details of his friendship with his bandmates, but man, the portrait that he paints of his parents who are survivors of the Holocaust, a teen immigrant with uh, all kinds of ambition, trying to look for his place to belong in Canada and how music really became his refuge. Uh, it is an incredible legacy that we have his story as part of Canada's storytelling. And man, he is a great storyteller. I have heard nothing but rave reviews. For, even if you aren't a huge fan of Rush or you know yeah. you didn't maybe know a lot about it, this is a fascinating story. It's so Canadian too, isn't it? Isn't it incredible? And the way he describes kind of high school and meeting with those bandmates and the connection they have and the access that, you know, a generous parent gave them to a garage and the tolerance they had for these yahoos. It really is charming. And his parents' story is just, it's just beautiful. It's really moving. It is. It's called My Effin' Life by Getty Lee. Also, great title. (laughs) Great title. Now, I love a good thriller. Whenever I just need something, a quick pick-me-up to read or just something to get into, I love a good thriller. So what about that? So we're seeing something really interesting with thrillers, uh, and, and customers are coming, and readers are really looking for a little bit more coziness in their thrillers. So it's a really interesting movement back towards maybe a little bit more traditional mystery. And there is not a better writer in Canada than Nita Prose for a mystery writer. So her first book, The Maid, came out last year, and it was a runaway hit. Uh, a great whodunit. Yeah, I liked fantastic it. Fantastic story about a mystery-solving uh, maid that works in a five-star hotel named Molly. And so it is just one of those like curl up and read books that you need on a winter evening. It will charm you. The mystery has lots of twists and turns. Uh, The characters are really lovely. Uh, And there's something about that kind of thriller page turner where you're wanting to find out the answer that just keeps you not looking Mm, at your phone, not getting distracted. It's really perfect. That is my favorite feeling when I'm reading a book, right? We're just (laughs) leave me alone. Let me finish this book. Uh, That's The Mystery Guest by Nita Prose. Now, what about cookbooks? I love giving away a cookbook. My favorite this year, hands down, is Mary Berg's newest cookbook. I don't know how she had time now that she's, you know, hosting all kinds of people. She's got a big, big life. But this book Um, Her book, In Mary's Kitchen, really is that you feel like you've got a stool at the counter in her kitchen. It's like having a trusted friend in the kitchen with you. She just chats with you and talks through recipes and makes everything seem possible. Um, The recipes uh, are really well tested. Are they? Uh, I'm always skeptical about it. It's hard sometimes with some books. You read this and you go, did they actually test this recipe? Well, and sometimes you get, you know, into the delusion that that TikTok 30-second recipe is enough information for you to deliver what they (laughs) delivered. And the truth is it's not. And there's something really wonderful, the fact that she's Canadian. When you watch how the recipes move throughout the year, she's in tune with what produce and what vegetables are available to us, you know, what are in our grocery stores, uh, the type of celebrations that we have. It's a really lovely gift for somebody who needs weeknights to be a little bit easier and maybe weekends to be a little tastier. It is, uh, it's the perfect book. Oh, who doesn't need that? In Mary's Kitchen by Mary Berg. Great cookbook recommendation. Now, what about something for perhaps the teenagers or the young adults in the family? Not the easiest people to buy for. No. (laughs) Not the easiest. Uh, But they are passionate readers. And what we've learned 
uh, is that teens don't want a new book. They want a new series. They want something that's going to sustain them. They want to get into this world building. They want something that's going to have, you know, book one, two, and three all the way to keep them to keep them in their books. And so a staff favorite this year is The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. And it's for good reason. It will not disappoint the teen on your list. It really is really fun. It's the first of three. Okay. And there's a surprise inheritance. Uh, that comes with a big kind of creepy home that has full of like tons of secret passages and <laughs> untrustworthy characters and friendships that will last throughout the series of the book. So The Inheritance Games, great new series, perfect for the teen. All right. Jennifer Lynn Barnes is the author of that. And very, very quickly here, Amanda, Neil Gaiman, you can't go wrong, right? Oh, my goodness. He there isn't a segment of the population he can't write for. Uh, he has a book for kids, uh, uh, What You Need to Stay Warm. It's really a gorgeous invitation to remember that sometimes the world feels scary. Sometimes it feels overwhelming. But the first step is just to look for connection and to stay warm and all of the things uh, that make us warm in our lives. It's uh, something that the adults who are reading it will love as much as the kids. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for these recommendations. Anytime. Please read more. Have a great (laughs) reading holiday. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the pictures are absolutely spectacular, but also, you know, kind of scary, right? The volcano in Iceland that is erupting has resulted in the evacuation of thousands of people, resulted in intense earthquakes as well. And now you can see these streams of lava from kilometers away, even in the capital of Reykjavik. So Iceland is used to volcanoes and eruptions. So let's get some perspective on what is going on right now. Joining us is Dr. Clive Oppenheimer, professor of volcanology at Cambridge University. Uh, Dr. Oppenheimer, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good morning. Also, what a fascinating title. How does one become an expert in volcanology? (laughs) I think it's what's left to you if you've never thought of anything else to do with your life. You you (laughs) fall all the way down to the underworld. That's what happened to me. (laughs) Have volcanoes always fascinated you? Oh, visiting the Geological Museum in London, where I grew up, London, UK. Uh, I I loved the minerals and the rocks and the fossils. So I think geology was was my trajectory, and uh, and then I specialised in volcanoes. And so, what do you make of what is happening in Iceland right now? Is this part of the kind of normal eruption cycle? So I guess, I mean, the first thing I make of it in a way is just uh, how successful my colleagues in Iceland have been in in monitoring the surveillance that they've done using satellites, instruments on the ground, measuring earthquakes. Uh, you know, they've seen this coming since October. Uh, and also keyed into that is all of the emergency response and civil protection and evacuating people. So that that I just find, you know, textbook quality. Uh, And then the other thing in terms of the cycle is this is the fourth eruption since 2021 on the Reykjan Peninsula, this little bit of Iceland that juts out into the North Atlantic near the capital Reykjavik. Um, But it's the first activity in this part of Iceland since the mid-13th century. Uh, So it looks like we're seeing the beginning of uh, a cycle that, that potentially could last for centuries. So is this, we're just going to keep seeing this then? It's going to continue in this fashion, do you think, or will it change? So what we've seen uh, geologically, uh, so this is going stretching back before Iceland was settled, but if we look at the last 4,000 years or so, there there have been maybe four other episodes of uh, this kind of activity, what we call fissure eruptions. Uh, and they have they have lasted uh, on and off for for um, four hundred or five hundred years, and then the system has shut down for maybe eight hundred years, and fired up again. Uh, and and so that's why we we're seeing the first activity on the Reykjan Peninsula in in seven hundred years, uh, and this may herald uh, something that could go on episodically for for centuries potentially. And I, th- I think that's one of the big questions. And uh, Iceland has an eruption every four or five years anyway. So if if they've got this uh, enhanced activity on the Reykjan Peninsula on top of what usually goes on, then uh, they're going to really have their work cut out for them. Uh, in what way? And so, and what is going on sort of under the surface here? Uh, so in what way, in terms of the the uh, monitoring, yes. uh, you know, it, when you say it they've got their the work cut out for them, what do they have to, what do they have to do? 
the the monitoring and surveillance activity is going to be stretching them because uh, you know if they've got more than one volcano going off at the same time or or going into a cycle of unrest, then then that just stretches the the resources for monitoring and the people. Uh, so yeah, that's that's um, hmm. that's something to think in okay. the future. So what is happening then under the surface that is causing all of this disruption? So this part of Iceland is is where the Mid Atlantic Ridge. Uh, this this is the uh, the submarine system comes on land in in Iceland, and it's it's the plate boundary between the tectonic plates of North America and and Europe. Uh, so you can go to this part of the world and, and stick one foot in Europe and one foot in in North America, and and that has been uh, stretching and splitting uh, at a, a rate of a few centimeters per year. Uh, and so uh, that's associated with a lot of volcanic um, activity with the accumulation of molten rock, uh, maybe 20 kilometers down in the crust. And when enough of that has, has gathered uh, and pressurized, uh, it might try and find a way up to the surface. And that, that's what we're seeing at the moment. Hmm. When you say stretching and splitting, that, that's kind of a, a scary words to use in a situation like this, Dr. Oppenheimer. <laughs> Uh, so maybe rifting then is that a okay. is that a nice yes. word? It's yeah, a, <laughs> it's it's like like um, you know the East African Rift Valley. Uh, this is a, an area where where the continental crust is stretching, and what we see in Iceland is o- oceanic crust that's being stretched, and uh, it's it's associated with with uh, tectonic activity and. Uh, the production of molten rock and mag- magmas, and when they erupt, uh, they fill in the, the crack that, that's developing, uh, and that uh, is what we see in, in the form of eruptions and then the landforms of volcanoes. So, I mean, the whole, whole of Iceland is a volcanologist paradise. The whole thing is made up of, of lava. Is it similar then to what we would see in a place like Hawaii, for instance, like on the Big Island? Uh, so I think there are a lot of similarities in terms of uh, there was a big episode of activity there in 2018 with lavas again uh, that, that were impacting settled areas. So there was, there was a lot of uh, civil protection need uh, involved in that eruption. They're similarly hot lavas, so they're very runny uh, and they're also quite gassy. So you see quite spectacular fire fountain in, fire fountains, lava fountains uh, that, that go up in in several hundred meters into the air and the lava falls back to the ground and then it flows over the ground finding the the, the lowest topography and because it's so hot and fluid it can reach uh, very great distances um, I'm, I'm looking at it now you know the live feed uh, from my loft office at home in Cambridgeshire but it's um, it's kind of yeah text textbook fissure volcanism uh, and these uh, lavas can erupt for, for long periods of time and they can insulate themselves at the top and, and then the lava can flow in tunnels and that can help insulate it from losing heat to the air uh, and then the lava can go even further. Okay, so we're just creating new land right here. What is that? What is happening in Iceland? Uh, so we're, we're resurfacing at the moment. So it's, it's covering land that's already there. Of course, uh, if the lava runs in into the sea then we might say you know that that it's it's creating new land and extending the coastline uh but yes yeah, certainly this is adding another layer uh of uh of basalt lava onto the basalt lava that was there from from um, many hundreds of years ago it is so cool to watch this happen dr oppenheimer thank you for your time my pleasure do i recommend tuning in and looking at that live stream it's it's uh, mesmerizing this is Mornings with Simi. I love a good train trip, especially if you're traveling, you go overseas, other countries. They have amazing train routes, amazing trains to take. In our country, not so much. It leaves a lot to be desired. Well, some people would like to see that change. Joining us now is Taylor Backrack, who's a transport critic for the new Democratic Party, of course, the federal NDP. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. What do you love about taking the train? Oh, trains are the best way to get around. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a clean, green form of transportation. It's uh, about moving through space with other people. And, uh, yeah, it's just something that Canada could do a lot better at, I think. 
No kidding. And so to make that point, you were on a cross-country train ride. Tell me about this. I am. I'm, I'm traveling from Toronto to my home in Smithers in northern BC, uh, partly to experience the reality of passenger train travel in Canada, and partly to talk with passengers and communities about some changes that I think would really improve the situation when it comes to train travel in our country. Is it possible to go from Toronto to Smithers on the train? It is, believe it or not. It's going to take about six days. And uh, from Toronto to Vancouver, the route is called the Canadian. It's a, a really special part of Canadian history and, and uh, part of our identity, I think, as a country. So that's the train I'm on right now. It's a 70-year-old train. It's, it's a piece of moving history. And, uh, and it takes four and a half days to get from Toronto to Vancouver. Now, that's, that's not 30, so bad. I mean, ago, if, if you were going to well, drive, right? If you were going <laughs> to drive, it would take you that long. <laughs> You know what? A few decades ago, it only took three and a half days. And the reality is that it's taking longer and longer because the passenger train has to pull over so frequently to let the freight trains by. And that's why last Thursday, uh, I tabled a bill in the House of Commons that would give passenger trains priority on shared tracks in Canada. This is uh, the kind of law that the United States already has. And it would go a long way to ensuring that passenger trains can keep a schedule. Um, if passenger trains ran on time more frequently, uh, then more people would be able to choose them as everyday transport. Right now, it's, for most people, it's, it's kind of a tourist option. It's not something that people can use uh, for scheduled appointments and, and uh, commuting and that sort of thing. Right. Right now, we kind of use it as a novelty, don't we? Yeah, for sure. And, and like you said in your intro, when you look around the world, there are so many other countries that do a better job than Canada. Uh, you know, we're a big country. This is a country that could really uh, have a functional passenger rail service. And, and yet what we've seen over the past 50 years is really a backsliding because of cutbacks, because of service reductions, and because of the rise of freight traffic and the fact that the passenger train so frequently has to pull off and let the freight by. Okay, but what if we do that then, doesn't that slow down freight trains and we know how essential those are? Well, sure. It's about it's about having a balance. It's about priorities. Uh, I think it's also about building infrastructure so that trains can get by each other more efficiently. Uh, but ultimately, you know, if you're talking about the needs of commuters and the needs of Canadians to get to appointments in other communities uh, versus the needs of a flat screen TV to get to a Walmart somewhere in the Midwest, uh, you know, I think we need to get our priorities straight. And if passenger rail was able to keep a better schedule, um, then we could have more people riding it. And that would, of course, lead to less greenhouse gas emissions. It would uh, have all sorts of benefits for our country. And so where are we at in terms of perhaps building more infrastructure to support passenger trains? Yeah, well, this is an interesting thing. So the, the federal government right now has a plan to build a new dedicated passenger line between Toronto and Quebec City. So that's the most populated part of Canada. Uh, right now, that accounts for 80% of Via Rail's revenue. And we really support the idea of building new passenger rail infrastructure, but we want to see it done right. And one of the concerns is that the Liberals want to privatize that corridor. Um, And so bring in a private investor and basically hand them all the passenger rail uh, and business between Toronto and Quebec City. Now, the concern is what impact that has for the rest of the country. If you take away 80% of Via Rail's revenue, Via Rail is a crown corporation, its sole shareholder is the government of Canada, If you take away 80% of its revenue, what's it going to be left with? And the fear is that over time, we could end up actually losing um, this really vital piece of of transportation in Canada. We already lost Greyhound. And if we lose via rail, then people in rural Canada, places like the one that I represent, um, they're going to have no options for getting around if they don't have a, a private vehicle. Now, we've talked about this here in B.C. too, about the idea of like high speed rail to, you know, along the West Coast there to Seattle and to Portland. Does that fit into your plans here as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, that the higher speed we can make the trains go in Canada, then the more people are going to choose the train over flying. Uh, the evidence from Europe shows that if you can get the train trip down to about within two hours of the flight time, um, then people will shift modes and they'll, they'll stop flying and they'll start taking the train. Uh, in countries like France, they've actually banned short haul flights because train travel is such an efficient way to get around the country. Um, so there are only some parts of Canada where that's really going to be viable. 
Uh, we talked about the Toronto to uh, Quebec City corridor. That's where a lot of the attention is going. And I think investments there are really important. Um, but like you said, there are other areas as well in Alberta, for instance, and, and of course, from Vancouver down to Oregon uh, has received a lot of attention too. Yeah. So this, should that be our focus is focusing perhaps on increasing uh, what the movement in some of these high, the, the high kind of priority corridors? I, I think that needs to be part of the focus, but for folks in rural Canada, just having conventional trains that run on time would be a vast improvement over what people currently have. So um, that's why I brought forward this bill. It's a, a simple change and it would allow, I, I think it would allow the passenger trains to run on time more frequently. Right now, the, the on-time performance of Via Rail outside of that Toronto to Quebec corridor is about 60%. So that means only six out of 10 trains run on time. Um, if we can improve that uh, for places like uh, the area I represent, more people are going to be able to choose it. It's going to be a more viable form of transportation. And, you know, if we if we saw some investment from the federal government down the road, this could be, I, I think it could be a really important part of the transportation network. Okay, what kind of support have you gotten for this? People love the train. Uh, just in the past 48 hours, I've received over 100 emails from people all across Canada saying what an important in- initiative this is and, and how much they support it. Uh, You know, I think people either remember a time in Canada when our train system was more functional or they've traveled to other countries and experienced the train systems there and they want that for their country. So um, there's a lot of support across the country for investing in passenger rail. And I hope the federal government hears that and and makes some decisions that really take us down that path. Okay, and so what what are you doing for that then? You proposed this bill. How do you get the federal government's attention on that? Well, that's part of this interview and this train trip and talking to as many people as possible, raising awareness, uh, encouraging people to write to the transport minister, uh, encouraging people to contact their MP and ask them to support this bill. Uh, I'm hoping that the government will pick up this idea and they can make it into a government bill and and pass it through the House of Commons uh, in short order and and make this a reality. the bill is only one piece of the puzzle. There are a bunch of other investments that need to be made in via rail. Uh, one of those things is that they need new trains for their long distance route. So the route that I'm on, the Canadian, right now it's running a train that's over 70 years old. And it's a, it's a beautiful train, stainless steel, um, and it served this country really well for a lot of decades. But uh, that fleet needs to be renewed, and we need the federal government to put that in the budget so that we uh, can continue to see routes like the Canadian and the Skeena, where I live, uh, continue to run into the future. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that today. Hey, thanks for the interest. And uh, yeah, folks can can learn more about it online. My bill is called C-371, the Rail Passenger Priority Act. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is Little Mountain Sound Studios Day in the city of Vancouver, as declared by Mayor Ken Sim and Vancouver City Council. Now, if you're asking, well, what is so significant about Little Mountain, then you probably didn't live in the city back in the 1980s when everyone knew about Bon Jovi recording here or Aerosmith reviving their career with the album that they recorded here. Metallica, ACDC, Loverboy, you name it. It all happened at Little Mountain Sound. We're going to talk about that history now with the help of Councillor Mike Klassen, who is with us. Does this bring back memories for you too? Oh, absolutely. I, I remember that time very well and, and had my little encounter actually uh, with Aerosmith. Oh, yeah. I, had, I actually had... Um, I think I had three encounters with members of Aerosmith uh, at one point in time, and the, the weirdest one was I, I had I just I was a young guy in my twenties. I just got a new job and I bought a nice camera, so I was trying to teach myself how to use the camera. So one day I just got in my car and I was driving down to the beach, and I was going down Seventh Avenue, and you see these. I went what, and I pulled over. It's a two lane road, so I literally like I'm sort of parked on the on wrong side of the road. Put my hazards on, walked over and asked Joe Perry from Aerosmith. Uh, Tom Hamilton and Brad Whitford were all standing out there and they were getting some sunshine on a probably a rare sunny day in April and uh, guitars in hand and, and I said, can I take a photo? I found the negatives. I took one photo. Like I'm I, sorry, you took one you, one. you see Aerosmith on the side of the road and you took one. 
one picture? One picture. At, well, back then you only had 24 pictures in a, in a roll of film, remember? But you also didn't know if it was going to turn out until you developed the film. Exactly. It could have been an absolute disaster, but here it is. It's a photo we're still using today and it's featured in tonight's documentary. Right, which you can catch, of course, on BC One. Squire Barnes has done a great job with this. So it, there's something about the history of Vancouver that are associated deeply with Little Mountain Studios. And did you feel like a lot of people don't know this history perhaps today? Well, that's really the point of this and how I was able to get, you know, council to get behind this. It, we really need to celebrate our arts and culture heroes and the fact that we have these ones that had such a significant global impact. I mean, you can't go into a football game or a hockey game without hearing some of these songs playing. Uh, they're obviously on radio worldwide and and even one of the songs uh, premier before he was the premier EB decided to give a yeah. give a shout uh, trying to drink uh, sing Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. So these song. are these are great songs and and uh, they have an indelible uh, stamp from Vancouver. I have to ask, because you said you had three run-ins with Aerosmith. I ran into Steven Tyler on Robson Street um, and uh, walked over him very carefully. He was there with his wife and kid, a young child in a stroller, and I took a, asked him for an autograph. And then another time, uh, I think I was out cycling on the seawall, and I saw uh, Joe Perry and uh, Brad, uh, Steve Tyler just there, kind of walking, enjoying a bit of the Vancouver surroundings, probably thinking about new songs. That's amazing, though, that yeah. one person could have three run-ins with Aerosmith. No, no Bon Jovi in that? No Bon Jovi, no bon Jovi appearances. But, of course, by the time uh, I took that photo, they'd already come and gone. They were here during Expo, which is, uh, there was something yeah. going on at that time. So they were here in uh, around 86 is when they were recording Slippery that, When Wet. And that was their breakthrough album. And I feel like that everybody knows about Slippery When Wet being recorded here because it's become just a, a Vancouver legend. It absolutely is. And, and then... Later, great bands, uh, ACDC's Thunderstruck became that, that uh, very famous lick that was done here in, in uh, Little Mountain Sound Studio. Uh, Metallica started recording their sort of big breakout album, the Black Album, uh, here as well. And uh, The Cult uh, and, of course, Loverboy really put us on the map in terms of people hearing that sound. And uh, bands like Honeymoon Suite, apparently. So they all talk about that in the documentary. But it was the amazing people that were there. Uh, it started off as a place that they did commercial jingles. And in fact, one of the most famous things today that you still hear is the SkyTrain jingle. The ding, yeah. ding, ding. That was recorded. That was recorded at Little Mountain Sound Studios. Um, and uh, but you know, it uh, it all sort of came to an end at one point. But I remember um, the kind of the arc, so so to speak, when they had the entire back wall of the studio was all covered in graffiti, and people were spray painting the names of the bands because a lot of groupies were hanging around back yeah. there. And eventually, one day. David Lee Roth came in to record an album and decided he was going to put a, uh, a scantily clad uh, kind of painting You're of a window. Yeah, David yeah. Lee Roth? Yeah. Shocking. Uh, and so complaints <laughs> happened, and then as a result, the city told him to paint it over. So it eventually just became a gray wall, and on the wall said, If you have complaints about this, call the mayor's office. So I just love the fact it comes full that. circle that we did the proclamation with Mayor Sim, and uh, really credit to those guys now. Is it possible, do you think, to revive some of that? history, that music, that love, that, that you know, the fact that it was so, so important? I think there's a lot of things that can happen and are sort of are happening. A big focus on trying to improve our live venues here in the city. Uh, we've been talking a lot about that. We all, we have uh, a huge music industry here. I mean, we obviously we know a lot about films being made here. Film, television, commercials are huge and also video games. I mean, we have big studios producing those. Uh, but our music industry is just as large and, and this is what I hope uh, partly comes from this as people see this as a bit of an inspiration for their own, you know, uh, career in music, potentially either as composers or as recording engineers, and just see Vancouver as a home to do that and, and use it as a, a place to, to launch a global career. Okay, today being, uh, you know, Little Mountain Sound Day here in uh, Vancouver, what's going to happen as a result of that? Yeah, so we've been able to, uh, the, sort of the city of Vancouver has some access over civic infrastructure, so we know that we can light up City Hall and Burrard Bridge and Bloedale Conservatory, but we went to BC Place and to Science World, and so what you'll start seeing throughout the day, and, and as it gets a little darker tonight, you'll see shades of gold and platinum uh, emanating from those buildings, because it's really a, a, in recognition of their huge 
huge chart selling success. That is so true. Okay, so do you have a favorite album of all of those, whether it is Metallica, ACDC, like a favorite album that was recorded here in Vancouver? Um, I'm I'm quite partial to the Aerosmith albums. I thought Pump was such a, a fine moment for Aerosmith with Janie's Got a Gun, such a great song. Um, but I still think that that big, big Living on a Prayer song has to be the one that it will always be remembered and always should be acknowledged as having that big Vancouver stamp on it. Now, you, you make a good point in terms of like, you know, recognizing music and it's just the importance of recognizing people want to memorialize kind of their time here, right? We were talking about the lights this morning down in Robson Square. Mm-hmm. Those are great. Mm-hmm. Love those. Uh, the sign out in Cole Harbor there. Is there any way to make that permanent? Uh, we're talking about it. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. You know, we've seen such a, a big reaction to So we're going to... Uh, reach out to city staff and see, you know, how we can do this, maybe get some official sponsors to come on. But it's, you're right, it's such a great spot. And it's right there where the cruise ship terminals, the tourists are there. They're walking around, they take pictures. You can tell people just love this sign. Yeah, it's all over the place. Sometimes do we miss out on those because nobody stops to say, hey, can we make this permanent? Uh, it's possible. You know, we've had, uh, I think, some interesting sort of public art sometimes that goes away. But I, I still think that the, 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 the Ken Lum East Van sign, for example, is just one of those iconic things. We've made it so hard to see and kind of use, take pictures of. So maybe someday we'll have a better way of accessing it. That's the thing, right? We have to recognize that people do sometimes just want to stop and take a picture. So can we say there's more to come on that? Uh, on the on the on the public art piece, yeah, uh, I, I would think over time, yeah, I've I actually uh, sit as a council liaison to our public art committee, so I have been talking to to them and to staff is how can we feature and 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 put more investment in that because they're really great place making uh, attractions and and I don't think we uh, do them um, nearly enough. So and and something like the East Van sign, which is so ki- iconic, and also a Vancouver artist Ken Lum that uh, that designed it uh, and uh, produced it. Um, you know, what can we do? That it would be things like that to people. And again, this is all about sort of celebrating arts and culture in our city, which is absolutely huge. You know what would be great is since we are coming up on a pretty probably sick, what is it, the 40th anniversary of Slippery When Wet being recorded here is yeah. coming up in another yeah. year or two. You got to bring Bon Jovi back for that. I would love to see that. I mean, you know, we would, I would love to see just artists be able to come together and, and celebrate all the great bands that were recorded here. Think about the first Heart album that was recorded oh, here, yeah. you know, Chilliwack and Doucette and all the, the artists that we still listen to. I'm going to let them play. You know, wouldn't it be fun to see a bunch of our bands get together and, and jam on a, on a song like that? Okay. You know what? You got there. It's something for you to work on. Oh, I'm working on it now, apparently. <laughs> you are working on yeah. it now. You have to come back and tell us about it. Thanks for your time this you morning. Bet. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. 